I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Glenn Cohen, Assistant Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and co-director of the Petri Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics. We're discussing the constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act that will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in March. Professor Cohen, the Supreme Court has indicated that it will address four questions in this case. Let's, let's go over those questions. The first it will take up is whether the ACA's penalty for not obtaining health insurance is actually a tax, and therefore under the Anti-Injunction Act cannot be challenged at all until it's been assessed. Can you briefly summarize the arguments on both sides of this question? Great, and thank you for having me. So this gets a little bit technical. Uh, under the Anti-Injunction Act that goes all the way back to 1867, uh, basically, there's a separate part of it called the Tax Anti-Injunction Act, or that's how it's referred to, uh, contained in Section 7421. And it says, quote, No suit for the purpose of restraining the assessment or collection of any tax shall be maintained in any court by any person, whether or not such a person is the person against whom such tax was assessed, unquote. And basically, what's that legalese for? It's legalese for the idea that a taxpayer can't file a lawsuit in a federal court to challenge a federal tax position if that provision has not yet actually gone into effect and been applied to a specific taxpayer. In other words, we don't have any pre-enforcement challenge. Now, what does that mean for this context? Well, the mandate only goes into effect in 2014. And essentially, until somebody is assessed a penalty or a fine for not complying with the mandate, which is really 2015, because that's when you'd have to do your federal tax return, if this particular act applies, the challenge to the ACA can't be heard until that time. The court is without jurisdiction to hear that challenge. It's not ripe for enforcement. So the circuits have actually split on uh, this question about whether this act blocks jurisdiction. The strongest argument for letting the challenges go forward is really a, a policy argument. And as the Obama administration has argued, uh, really it seems odd to think that Congress wanted uh, to wait to 2015 before it could have these particular challenges uh, heard, right? Uh, Congress has never before mandated uh, that, and it just seems strange, as the Obama administration put it in one of its briefs, uh, it seems strange that challenges of constitutionality of the minimum coverage provision would not be resolved until long after most of the regulated industries had made uh, a change. So that's the Obama administration's position. I think the best statement of the opposite position was by Judge Kavanaugh. He's a very widely respected uh, conservative judge who sits on the D.C. Circuit, and he wrote a 65-page dissent arguing the fact this act blocks jurisdiction. And if I can quote for him, he summarized his conclusion this way. He said there's a straightforward chain of logic here, right? Taxes are insulated from pre-enforcement suits by the Anti-Injunction Act. In order for the Affordable Care Act penalties to be ass assessed and collected in the same manner as taxes, which is what the statute says, the assessment and collections of these penalties likewise must be insulated from pre-enforcement suits by the act. So a big question here is whether they really are tax penalties. And again, the Obama administration initially took the position this act blocks jurisdiction, but later on it's now taking the position that it does not, that they are not tax penalties, that the Anti-Injunction Act does not block the action. So where do you expect the court will come down on this? 
So it seems like the court's pretty enthusiastic to uh, address the ACA issues. Had Judge Kavanaugh not dissented in the D.C. Circuit opinion, I would have said it was very unlikely for the Supreme Court to hold that they were without jurisdiction. That said, Kavanaugh is kind of a hero to the conservative movement. He's a very well-respected judge. And I think that at least uh, the fact that they granted cert on this question, they're taking the question seriously. But my own gut tells me that this will not be the way they resolve the case. The aspect of the case that's received the most serious attention is what makes up the second question. Does Congress have the constitutional authority to require Americans to purchase health insurance? What are the main arguments supporting that claim? Great. So this is the question about whether the individual mandate provision uh, is constitutional or not. So the government has really argued two main sources of constitutional authority. The first one is the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Under Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, Congress is given the power to, quote, regulate commerce among the several states. So the first argument offered for the constitutionality of the mandate is that this is an exercise of the Commerce Clause. Under settled law, some of it nearly 200 years old, Congress can regulate activity that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. As recently as 2005, the Supreme Court held that Congress can regulate local non-economic behavior when such regulation is, quote, an essential part of a larger regulation of economic activity in which the regulatory scheme could be undercut unless the interstate activity was regulated. Uh, and indeed, the court has upheld a federal ban on growing marijuana for personal consumption, the Raich case, on exactly this uh, basis. So that's one basis, the Commerce Clause. The second one, though, is what's called the Necessary and Proper Clause. So at the end of Article One of the Constitution, uh, it gives uh, Congress the authority to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to carry out its responsibilities. So in order to prevail, the opponents of the mandate will have to show that there is neither authorization under the Commerce Clause nor under the Necessary and Proper Clause to sustain the individual mandate. Maybe I can just say a word about each of those two powers and what the arguments are being made about this. Let's start with the Commerce Clause. So the principal complaint uh, about the mandate by its opponents is that Congress should only be able to regulate economic activity and that the mandate is not a regulation of any activity. It is instead a regulation of inactivity. This is the activity-inactivity line that's been bandied about uh, by opponents of the mandate. Now, that's not a distinction the Supreme Court has ever drawn in its own jurisprudence. Uh, but opponents of the mandate say that even if con Congress can regulate health care, it cannot demand that you purchase private insurance. To quote Randy Barnett, a professor who is one of the main uh, intellectual uh, progenitors of the arguments being made, quote, Congress has never before mandated that a citizen enter into an economic transition with a private company. So there can be no judicial precedent for such a law. On the other hand, the Supreme Court has never said the opposite either. It's true there's no uh, authority squarely on point. Uh, and what I think is really going on here is opponents of the ACA are pressing what I'll call a no-limitation argument. If they can force us to buy health insurance, why not broccoli or whatever your favorite parade of horribles leads to? Well, I think this is a very highly rhetorically effective move by Professor Barnett uh, and many people who are opposed to the ACA. I ultimately think this line of argument fails. First, uh, it's important to realize this is an argument about the Commerce Clause power and thus the federal government's power. 
Nothing in the argument prevents state governments from imposing a mandate, as, of course, Massachusetts did. Once you accept that a state like Massachusetts or Virginia can impose a broccoli mandate, uh, the libertarian sort of critique behind this argument becomes a bit more tarnished. Uh, And the idea that an individual state like Massachusetts or Virginia can do this while the federal government cannot seems a little harder to swallow. So that's the Commerce Clause argument. Even if you weren't with me on the Commerce Clause argument, even if you thought the Commerce Clause was a problem, there's still the Necessary and Proper Clause. To borrow from my colleague uh, Mark Hall, who teaches at Wake Forest's terrific work on the subject, we can draw an analogy to a recent decision in 2010 by the Supreme Court called United States v. Comstock. It held the Necessary and Proper Clause supports involuntary civil confinement of federal prisoners for psychiatric treatment even after they have fully served their criminal sentence. This is true, said the Supreme Court, despite the lack of a general federal police power over civil commitment. Involuntary treatment was ruled necessary and proper to Congress's power, its implied authority, to punish crimes relating to interstate commerce. So the argument goes, just as it was necessary and proper in that case, it's necessary and proper in this case. Um, The compulsory insurance is necessary and proper in the particular context of the ACA to achieve Congress's goal of requiring health insurers to accept all applicants regardless of health condition. The Commerce Clause clearly gives Congress authority to impose the guarantee issue requirement on insurers. Nobody is contesting that. And the claim is that this power to have the mandate is necessary and proper to effectuate that guarantee issue. So you've given us a clear statement of your view on the question. Do you want to predict what the court might decide? So this is an interesting one. I think the view of the law professoriate and also uh, uh, intelligent observers has really shifted over time. When the first challenges came, I think people really thought that it was impossible or would be crazy for the Supreme Court to strike it down. As the case has progressed, and a number of circuits have indeed reached that conclusion, and in part uh, due to the excellent advocacy of Professor Barnett uh, at Georgetown, I think striking down the act has gone from impossible to improbable to now in the realm of possibility. Still, I think it's not going to happen. My guess, and it really just is a guess, is that we'll either have a 5-4 decision, with the 5 being prior Ginsburg, Sotomayor, my old boss, Elena Kagan, and Justice Kennedy as the decisive vote, or possibly a 6-3 vote with Scalia added on based on some of the things he said in the marijuana case in favor of upholding the act. Well, I think that's how the vote tally will ultimately come out. I think the opinions will be very messy. We may find a patchwork of opinions, some saying the court should not reach the issue because of the Anti-Injunction Act, Some saying the mandate but not the Medicaid expansion is constitutional. Some saying the mandate is constitutional and the tax power, other by the Commerce Clause. We may not get five votes for a single opinion, but I do think we're likely to get five votes holding up the act. The third question the court's going to address assumes that it does not uphold the individual mandate. And the question then is, what happens to the rest of the law? Right. So this is the issue of what we call severability. When a portion of a bill is struck down as unconstitutional, the court always faces the question of what to do with the rest of the bill. 
Now, sometimes Congress actually puts in bills what's called a severability clause that says, if you strike down this portion, leave this portion in or strike down this portion as well. When it does that, it makes our life easy as jurists and makes the court's life easy. In the case of the ACA, interestingly, in the earlier drafts, there was a severability clause, but in the draft that ultimately passed, there is no such clause. When there is no such clause, the Supreme Court has to decide what to do. Uh, and basically, it's a two-step process for the court. First, to decide whether other parts can actually function if a key part is nullified. And second, to focus on whether they could function as Congress intended, that is, whether Congress would have preferred to keep any of the remaining parts. So it's really a question of congressional intent. In the case of the ACA, there's really just so much there. Uh, my favorite is actually the follow-on biologics pathway that really has nothing to do whatsoever with the mandate. That it seems to me unlikely uh, that Congress really intended for everything to go down with the ship if the mandate gets struck down. Uh, on the other hand, there are pieces that seem pretty closely tied to the mandate. The guarantee issued provisions, for example, really those will only function uh, if the mandate is in place. I, guess, I suppose it's possible we could replace it with a system of subsidies, but that seems unlikely. Your recent perspective article on the case focused on the challenge to the ACA's expansion of Medicaid, and that's the fourth question the court's going to be addressing. What are the states arguing in that piece? Great. So the ACA requires that state Medicaid plans starting in 2014 cover all persons under 65 years of age with individual or family incomes up to 133% of the federal poverty level. That requirement represents a significant change. Medicaid had not previously set a baseline income level for mandatory eligibility for adults. And when fully phased in in 2020, the act will provide 90% federal matching funds for newly eligible beneficiaries, which is more generous than what we do currently do for eligible beneficiaries. Uh, but this is a big change. It's going to create a major budget uh, requirement, a major budget cost for the individual states. Only in the Florida lawsuit, which was joined by 25 other states, did they challenge the authority of Congress to mandate this Medicaid expansion. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rejected that challenge, but interestingly, the Supreme Court has granted a review on this issue, allowing a full hour of argument. Uh, and basically, the question here has to do with another part of the Constitution called the Spending Clause. <clears throat> As the Supreme Court has explained, a legislation enacted pursuant to the spending power is in the nature of a contract. In return for federal funds, states agree to comply with federally imposed conditions that fix the terms on which states disperse federal money. Congress gets pretty broad authority to set the conditions on its spending, but Florida's challenge really raises two separate limits. First, it says federal conditions have to be unambiguous. So states need to be given clear notice of their obligations when they accept federal funds so that they can knowingly accept, uh, basically exercise that choice, which is protected under the Constitution, about whether to participate. So were they given fair notice? The second is that the federal government can employ the standing power in such a way as to, quote unquote, coerce. That's the key word from the jurisprudence. It can't coerce the states into compliance with federal objectives. Though the federal government may not force states to participate in federal programs, it can use incentives to induce them to do so, as Congress did with the original Medicaid program, No Child Left Behind, and a number of other uh, programs. But as the Supreme Court put it in a 1987 case called South Dakota v. Dole, quote, 
In some circumstances, the financial inducement offered by Congress might be so coercive as to pass the point at which pressure turns into compulsion. So the key question here is whether this is compulsion, coercion, or whether it's merely uh, uh, pressure. Uh, and the 11th Circuit thought that it was merely pressure, not coercion. The challenges have argued otherwise. They face an uphill battle. While the Supreme Court has mentioned this coercion argument before, it's never actually struck down a scheme on this basis. Uh, and really, this would put uh, the court into the difficult uh, situation of determining uh, which federal programs are coercive versus which are not. Uh, so I think this is going to be a tough challenge, and I think I, like many people, were surprised that the Supreme Court showed a significant amount of interest uh, on this question. So given what you say, why did the court take on this piece of the challenge? You know, it's quite surprising. Uh, again, although this coercion problem is mentioned in the Dole case, really no challenge on that basis has ever made it successfully through the court, uh, nor has the court particularly suggested it would be quite open to it. Um, such challenges would put the court into the difficult uh, situation of figuring out when an offer of funding from the uh, federal government is coercive, something they're likely to be quite uncomfortable with based on separation of powers and maybe not so well uh, set institutionally to do. And moreover, as the Obama administration argued in its brief in opposition on this question, uh, there was no circuit split on the question. The only quest court that had been asked to rule on it, the 11th Circuit, had found that there was no such problem. And how likely do you think it is that the court will strike down the Medicaid expansion? I still have to believe that it's unlikely. I, again, as I said, I would have told you very unlikely until they granted cert on the question. But I find it hard to believe. Uh, now, that said, most many of the judges who now sit on the court were not present for the last go-around on this question in 1987 in the Dole case. So we really don't know what their views about uh, the spending clause and the coercion argument are. Uh, but it seems to me still unlikely that it will be struck down on this basis. But again, the fact that a full hour of argument is being devoted to this question uh, seems highly relevant to me. And more broadly, if the court strikes down the health care reform law altogether, what are the implications for the country? Well, one big... Uh, implication of the loss of the pre-existing condition exclusions, right, the guaranteed issue. That has made a big difference in the lives of many people and will make a big difference in the lives of many people. Uh, if the follow-on biologics and other what I think of as goodies buried in the ACA go, a number of industries will be unhappy, as will a number of states and private insurers and individuals who have tried to plan and make changes to, have the, uh, to be ready when the ACA goes into place, the exchanges. Now, there's nothing to stop individual states from adopting some of the changes the ACA uh, was intended to foster. Uh, but it strikes me as many states will not do so without the benefits and the coverage of an interstate solution. Perhaps most importantly, I think it will be a major black mark against President Obama. Here we have a former constitutional law professor himself being told that his efforts at health care reform are unconstitutional. That said, it may be that it's a blessing in disguise that President Obama doesn't want to be talking about health care reform into the next election cycle. Thank you, Professor Cohen. My pleasure.